I have this fantasy. John the Baptist is appointed as pastor of Bell Mead United Methodist Church. During his first week, he is invited to a cookout hosted by the Upper Room Sunday School class. Now this seems to be a tradition because when Terry and I and Sam and Mark arrived, we were invited to that cookout. It was grand. There's been a lot of talk about this appointment of John. Nobody seems to know much about him, only that he came from a very rural area and that he is reported to have some curious habits. John arrives at the gathering. It's July in Tennessee, and the class members are dressed appropriately in shorts and short sleeves. John walks in wearing a full-on camel hair overcoat with a very large leather belt around his waist. He looks more like a Viking than he does a Methodist preacher. This is awkward, and it's only going to get worse. Rob Durrett is man manning the grill. He introduces himself and asks John if there are any dietary restrictions he should know about. John says only that I eat locusts, <laughs> organic free-range locusts, if you must know. Those farm-raised locusts are really no good. And I only eat locusts with a drizzle of honey. Can you do that, John asks. And Rob doesn't make any promises, but maybe John can make do with just a salad. The evening progresses. Class members take turns coming to introduce themselves and try to get a read on the new pastor. He's not terribly forthcoming about his personal information, and he's not very good at small talk. Awkward. After dinner and dessert, the class gathers outside on the patio. Deb is the evening's host, and she invites John to say a few words to the class. John stands up, looks over the class members, and thunders, you brood of vipers. It's startling. Clearly, John missed that day in the preaching class where the professor said that maybe it's a good idea to start your remarks with a funny joke to kind of break the ice. <laughs> Repent, he says, for the kingdom of heaven is at your doorstep. There comes one soon who is far greater than me. I'm not worthy to even carry his sandals. He's coming to separate the wheat from the chaff, so get ready. And by the way, I had a nice time at your gathering. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> Awkward. Today is the first Sunday in Advent. Today we set sail once again to tell the story of Jesus from the beginning. That story does not take place in the beginning in the manger. There are no shepherds, there are no cattle, there are no angels, there are no wise men. We all know that there are four Gospels in our Bible. Only two of those Gospels tell any sort of a story about Jesus' birth. I don't have a good explanation as to why that is, only my own guesses. But here's what I do know. All four of the Gospels have John the Baptist as the trailblazer for Jesus. And what that means to me is that it's an unmistakable conclusion that you cannot get to Bethlehem and the manger without first going through John the Baptist. And what exactly is John's message? Well, it's pretty simple, really. Repentance. Get your house in order. Time is running out. Droves of people left Jerusalem to go out to hear John in the Judean desert. Now, a little geography is in order here. The Judean desert begins about seven miles east of Jerusalem. That's not all that far. 
But Scripture tells us that John has decided to set up shop at the Jordan River, and where he was is about 80 miles from Jerusalem. So we're talking about a pretty good hike, either on foot or on donkey. Neither of those trips would have been easy. And when you add in the feature of carrying the kids along, then you know how long that that trip was really going to take. And what my question really is, is what were all these people going that far to find? This wasn't a casual Sunday afternoon trip. It required a big commitment. What did they think they were going to get from John the Baptist? Because let's face it, friends, straight talk about sin and repentance is not terribly popular among we Methodists and several other groups I could name. Now, we're all in when it comes to forgiveness and grace, but we are uncomfortable talking about sin and repentance and transformation from an old way of life to a better way of life. I think there may be lots of reasons for that. Some of us grew up probably with some pretty hardcore preachers who, quite frankly, made fear the foundation of their message, repent or burn. I can't tell you the number of high-pressure sermons I have heard in my lifetime given to teenagers. The way it usually goes is the sermon is fiery and the preacher finally gives an altar call and after the seventh verse of Just As I Am, the preacher turns the organist and asks them to stop. He walks down into the center aisle and looks out at the teenagers who have not yet come forward to the altar. And he points at them one at a time and says, if you die on your way home in a car accident, are you going to spend your eternity in hell? That is not good news. It was, in fact, an ultimatum, and quite frankly, an unforgivable act of spiritual extortion perpetrated on a teenager. So today, let's recapture the word as it was intended. To repent simply meant and simply means to turn. It doesn't even necessarily mean a 180-degree turn. If you start out driving your car in an absolute straight line from where you are to where you're going, and somewhere along the way you veer off just a little, you'll be surprised 100 miles down the road how far you've strayed from your destination. You don't have to be completely off track to not get where you're going. You can just be a little off track. Repentance can mean a lot of different things to different people. For some, maybe it is 180 degrees, but I think for most of us, it's making those adjustments in our life that help us to get reconnected to the source of life. Repentance is a spiritual destination, and it's about liberation, not about judgment. Why would all those people travel so far to get yelled at by John the Baptist? Because in spite of their attempts to connect with their faith, they were, they were empty inside. Something was missing. They didn't feel whole. They had everything you'd ever want, but it wasn't enough. It's never enough. John the Baptist was offering the one thing that you can't buy, the one thing that you can't acquire, and that's freedom. His appearance at the Jordan River was a type of return from exile. So, from the time of the Jews beginning, they understood exile, they understood return. In Moses' time, exile was returned from Egypt. In Isaiah's time, the return was from the exile 
of Egypt that was Babylon. And in Matthew's time, it was returned from the Egypt that was Rome. In that way, repentance becomes a gift, a way to reconnect with God. That's what we're here to do in the Advent season, to get reconnected. And there's one last thing today. Once you've been to the desert, once you've been in the wilderness, once you've been to the Jordan River and reconnected with God and been cleansed, what do you do then? You abandon your job? You go on a quest? You start a revolution? What appears to be true in our scriptures over and over and over again is the answer is no, you should just go home. Go back to your family, go back to your job, go back to your neighbors, stop running. Stop imagining that God must be somewhere else far, far away. Inhabit your own life. Why? Because the holy ground that matters the most is the ground beneath your feet. If we're willing to look closely, if we're willing to believe that nothing in our lives is too ordinary for God, then we can begin to understand that everything we need for our salvation is embedded in the lives that God has already given us. So this is Advent. It's the time to get your house in order. It's the time to make ready, the time to prepare. I studied preaching at Vanderbilt under John Killinger. He was um, an interesting guy. He was a prolific writer. He churned out about two books a year. He was a great preacher. No, there was no doubt about that. And in his introductory to preaching class that I took, he told us young would-be preachers a story about himself. He said as a young preacher who went to his first church preparing to deliver his very first sermon, he approached an older, wiser colleague and asked him how he should get ready for Sunday. And this old colleague said, Son, you just need to let go of everything, make your way into that pulpit, pray to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will tell you what to say. And Killinger took those words to heart, and he said he climbed into the pulpit that very first Sunday, he bowed his head and he prayed to the Holy Spirit, and he said, sure enough, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, John, you should have prepared. <laughs> he told that story as a way of making sure we young would-be preachers would understand what was required in that moment. But I think it's a warning for all of us, too, as we enter Advent. Let me say it this way. If you fail to prepare your heart, if you fail to, to get your house in order for the coming of Jesus, you might find yourself wondering later this month why Christmas left you feeling flat, like somehow you missed something. Because the fact of the matter is, if that happens to you, you probably did miss it. All of this is in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen.